me. If you'd turn in your Bibles tonight to Daniel chapter 8, we'll finish chapter 8. And as I shared in the introduction to this book, um, without the book of Daniel, it would be very hard, if not impossible, for us to really understand the book of Revelation. Now understand the timing of these two books. They're nearly 600 years apart from the writing of the book of Daniel to the writing of the book of Revelation. So there is no connectivity between the two. Um, Also remind yourself that during even biblical times in the New Testament, books were extremely valuable. And if they were not in a rolled form, as in a scroll, which was still somewhat common, you might have had what's called a codex, which is an early forerunner of a book. And that would be sheets that were written and then stacked together and stitched on the edges. And sometimes, you know, a two or 300 page book would end up a foot thick. So nobody was lugging around a book of Daniel. Nobody was carrying around a scroll of Daniel. Very few of those scrolls probably would have even existed in the New Testament times. And they were even rarer in the Old Testament times. But the book of Daniel was codified and we have a copy of it, a nearly complete copy of it that dates to about 200 BC. So we know that the book of Daniel was written well before the book of Revelation by close to 300 years at a minimum. Highly likely it's very close to the full 560 or so years between the two books. And so as we look at this remainder of the chapter here in chapter 8, we are going to get something that happens in no other place in the entirety of the Bible where we are going to get a visit from heaven by the angel Gabriel whose other announcement that Gabriel made was none other than the birth announcement of Jesus. So this next section of the book of Daniel appears to have the same type of importance, may not be exactly the same, but it is so important that God sends from heaven the same messenger to interpret this dream that is sent to make the birth announcement of both Jesus and John the Baptist. So this is heady stuff from heaven. This is a big deal. And so as we look at this remainder of the passage tonight, uh, get ready for a little bit of encouragement because if God knows the future and he has been right thus far, we can trust that he is going to be right to the very end. And so God has a plan for the very last days of man's time here on earth. And if we know that God's heart is that none should perish, we know that God's heart is that people would come to repentance and be saved, we know God's heart in that issue, then as we see things in the world ratchet up in an eschatological sense, and by that I simply mean by us getting closer to the end of days, that we know that God is also going to ramp up the value of the church the importance of evangelism and the importance of us sharing our faith with others in that sense. And so tonight we'll pick up in verse 15 and we'll finish chapter 8. Would you join me? Let's pray and we'll see what the Lord has for us here in Daniel chapter 8. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for this passage as I was reading it and rereading it this afternoon. It just encouraged me Uh, Even though what is contained in it uh, would be frightening to someone who doesn't know you, it's exciting for us who do know you. And Lord, because it's exciting for us, we ought to also know that you wrote this for a reason and then told us it would be sealed up until the end of time. And so God, we pray that we would derive from it all that you want your church to know. Uh, Encourage us unto good works, to works of righteousness. Lord, help us to be people who are unashamed uh, of our faith and able to share uh, the good news with those who inquire for the reason that we have hope. And so bless us tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 15 here in Daniel chapter 8. And then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of, of a man. And of course, throughout Scripture, we find this basic principle that upon occasion when angels come, 
Uh, they take the form of a man, and that's fairly consistent. And so proper hermeneutics, proper interpretation of Scripture uh, is that when the first meaning of something is made clear that we ought not seek another meaning. So we can pretty much be guaranteed that this is an angelic visitation, and we're actually going to find out who it is. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So we have both a Christophany and an actual appearance and or the voice of the angel Gabriel because we know that the only one who commands the angels in heaven is the Lord himself. Amen? And so you have this picture of he hears his voice in his mind, and so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, and not the son of man, as in the title for Jesus, but as in a representation of mankind, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, I want you to notice this as being excruciatingly specific because it is talking about a very defined end of time. And we're going to go on and find out that we know exactly what time is being referred to here as well. And now as he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground and he touched me and stood me upright. And so it appears that Daniel has... Uh, checked out, gone unconscious, and the Lord is speaking directly into his subconscious in the deepest form of what we would call REM sleep. Uh, and this is going to be a dream he's going to remember. And now he's speaking, speaking with me in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation and or wrath. You could substitute the word wrath for indignation there. This is the time specifically of God's end of his dealing with the sin of man. God's indignation. God God is, is indignant towards sin in that sense. And so as you look at this passage of Scripture, and as it now continues, goes back to a part that we, we have already known, it says, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. So he's told us there is a definitive end. He's told us it's at the end of the wrath of God. And he's told us that that time is fixed. And so this is super important for us as the body of Christ. Because we know this is still future, because we know the Antichrist is not risen, we also know that this is ahead for mankind, and so this puts us on notice that God is not going to play around forever with the world the way it is. He's not going to continue to allow man to sin with impunity. Now, this does two things. It certainly should scare us if we're dabbling in sin, And it should also give us great hope if we're part of the body of Christ because one of the things that we worry about is like, Lord, how long will you continue to allow these things to happen because we believe you're sovereign? When are you going to step in and do something about what's going on in our world? And the ram which you saw, so now he goes back to the portion we've already uh, interpreted, having two horns, They are the kings of Media and Persia. And so whenever the Bible interprets itself, that's really helpful. Amen? So this is Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn is between its eyes is the first king. And so we're we're now getting into this area to where so much of this is being defined for us by this angelic interpretation, by Gabriel's interpretation of this dream, that it is no longer in the category of things that we can't know or understand. He's actually telling us directly what's going to happen. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. 
In other words, there will be, gen- this is the generals that we talked about, that were the generals that served under Alexander the Great, who then divided up what was known as Macedonia and Greece at the time, and they ruled over that nation, but it didn't have the power uh, of the ruler himself. And then it says, and in the later time of their kingdom, and that's another way of saying of the world's kingdoms, of their kingdom, because we're still in the time of humanity, amen? We, we still are in that area where we would say we're still with humankind. And, and here's how we know when this is, that it was not just simply Greece, it was not simply Rome, it, it was not any nation that was previously understood by us, when the transgressors have reached their fullness. And so again, another clue for us. Because mankind has been transgressing God's law since pretty much day one. Amen? It began in the garden. Mankind continued to transgress the law, so much so that by the time of Noah, God says, look, that's it. Only eight people are going to survive of all of humanity. God wipes out the rest of the earth's population. After the flood, mankind again reestablishes uh, himself on the earth. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 9, man is already back at it, at the Tower of Babel, trying to reach up to God and, and usurp God's authority. So this has been a problem for mankind since the beginning. Transgression simply means to miss the mark of God. It's another word for sin. And so at the end, transgressors will have reached their fullness. And when you think on this, the reason that people have struggled with this so much is they look back at human history and say, how much worse could it get than the Caesars? Or how much worse could it get than the Medes and the Persians? How much worse could it get than the Carthaginians? How much worse could it get than the Phoenicians? How much worse than it could it get than the Romans? How much worse could it get than Hitler? How much worse could it get? Look at our world and ask yourself a simple question. Is the world any safer, any kinder? Have we progressed to the point to where there's no evil in the world? Or have we, in fact, figured out new and greater ways to obtain evil and to make it our daily living? And I would say to you that we are in an unprecedented time where mankind has figured out new ways to do old sins and we are actually getting better at it, which means the transgressions themselves are getting worse. In fact, what did we read? That good would be called evil and evil would be called good. That's one of the signs. You see, up until about 100 years ago, there was almost no place on earth where if you murdered somebody, anyone would try and defend it. There was almost no place on earth where adultery wasn't actually a crime. Do you understand that? And in fact, in my own lifetime, here in the state of California, adultery was a crime when I was still in high school. Homosexuality was considered a crime as well. The, the sexual perversions that we have in our day and time, there was a reason that pornography was kept in the back of the store with the brown paper wrapping over it because no one was supposed to have it. It was illegal. Now it not only is not illegal, it's available on your cell phone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, live and in color. So when we think about the world's transgressions, we need to be very careful that we're not talking about things which actually God's not concerned with in the way that we are concerned with them. God's concerned about the heart of man. And man has, in fact, figured out new ways to sin. And we're doing it with more impunity than ever. Mankind is turning his nose at God and saying, we don't care. We're going to define human sexuality the way we want to. We don't care how you define marriage, God. You may have invented it, but we're going to tell you what it is. We've gotten to the place to where civil discourse in the public square is an abnormality. It was unheard of that, that diplomats would call one another names. 
That was considered to be so gauche, so beyond the pale of what civilized human beings would do even 50 years ago, no one would have sat on the floor of the Senate of the United States and start calling other senators' names. And yet we've reached a place where we can't even be civil. The reason I'm telling you that is this. God said these things will increase towards the last days. But he also said that there will come a point in time when he's going to say, absolutely enough. You've gone too far. Now we get to the end. Notice what it says. And a king shall arise. That would be a second one. Having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and prosper and thrive and destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So every government is going to come under his sway. He's going to be extremely brilliant. He is going to persecute the Jewish people, specifically Israel. And through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. Notice what it says. It doesn't say poverty. It says prosperity. Material wealth. And he shall even rise against the prince of princes. That would be Jesus. But he shall be broken without human means. Now check this out. What your Bible says is there will come a ruler in the last days towards the very end of time when things have gotten so bad that the transgressions of the people of the world are so in the face of God that we will be open to a ruler ruling over the world, first with deceit, but with power, and ultimately he will be so powerful that the Lord himself is going to have to defeat him. This is looking forward to a book that you have in the very back of your Bible called the book of Revelation. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which I told was true. And therefore, seal up the vision. Underline this part. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And that word translated days there is not the normal Hebrew word yom. It means a period of time. It's not a calendar day. It's, it's a, it appears to be like an epoch, a period of time. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. And afterwards I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood now, as you read this at first glance, you're like, wow, this is just, this is crazy heavy. And it is. But I want you to also notice something that Daniel, in, in getting this vision himself, it was so far in the future that God tells him to seal it up completely. Don't consider it. There's no reason for you to think on it right now. And in fact, the reason that is, is because the age of grace had not even begun yet. So to him who knows it's sin, to him it's sin. And, and so people, God's not going to hold people to the standard of his grace and his word without having knowledge of his word and grace. And so this is so far in the future to Daniel that Daniel's told this isn't really for you, but I want you to write it down. Because it's going to be really important someday, like right now. And really has been for probably the last 70 years or so. And that is chiefly because of what's happened to the nation Israel. Was this all God was trying to communicate? Just horns and Alexander the Great and four generals and a Seleucid uh, ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes IV? Is that, I don't think so. I think God had another message for the world and is contained in the stream. Gabriel is the archangel and as he appears here to Daniel, he obviously appeared to Mary as well. 
giving her the word about her son who is to come. So this is a super important announcement. This is not one of those things like, well, you know, they could have, they could have sent the Archangel Bob or something. I don't know. I'm not sure who the lower guy is on the Archangel totem pole, but he sends none other than Gabriel himself. And, and maybe if you're like me, you kind of you kind of look at this and you go, "Man, I, I'm, why would God do this so soon?" Because God has been faithful throughout history to make sure that man knows exactly what he expects. And so, as we look at what Daniel writes down, ultimately, we see in this three time periods. Notice them: the end of time the appointed time, and the time of indignation. And so as you look at these things, those three pieces of information point us towards a very specific time in human history. Because God is going to pour out his wrath, we now know, notice this vision was sealed up. Daniel had no way of knowing the timing of this because the book of Revelation was not written yet. The age of grace had not come yet. God's plan for salvation was revealed only in part in the Old Testament. He certainly could have known by faith that the Messiah was going to come, but the Messiah had not yet come. And so it will happen in the latter time, the end of time. The end of what time? I believe it points directly to the end of the age of grace in which we currently live. And when we say end of the age of grace, it's also the times of the Gentiles that Jesus referred to. And as Jesus refers to this time, which he does in Matthew chapter 24 and also Luke chapter 21. And for tonight's purposes, if you want to turn to Luke 21, it'll be helpful for you. The Gentile domination and mistreatment of the Jewish people, the things that are going on currently in Israel. Isn't it interesting that the United States of America chooses to take out a terrorist. And that's what happened. But who gets lumped in with the United States of America in the Iranian response? Israel. I'd encourage you at some point in time during the remainder of the week to read Ezekiel 38. And see if you don't see the nation Persia in there as one of those nations that in the very last days will rise up against the Jewish people aided by guess who? Russia. They will put together a consortium of nations. That consortium of nations is currently, as you look at the map, all of the nations that surround today, modern day Israel. And so when it says at the end of time, notice how Jesus actually put this Verse 20, Luke chapter 21. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that the desolation is near. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. What all? The prophecy of Daniel. And the book of Revelation. And the book of Zechariah. And the book of Isaiah. Everything that has been said about God honoring his covenant with Israel. The book of Joel. That I will gather them together in the valley of Jehoshaphat for what they have done to my land my people Israel, and to my name. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his peop- this people. They'll fall by the sword, be taken as prisoners into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled until the age of grace is over. Uh, Until God finally says, look, this is it. Here's the line in the sand. It's not proverbial. 
It is a literal line. You can't go past this line. And once that line has been crossed, then everything that God has said would come to pass in that day will begin to unfold right before our eyes. Now, the good news is, if you're here and you're a child of God, a vast majority of those things that God has destined as punishment for the way the world has treated Israel, for the way the world has thumbed its nose at God, and for the way people have acted not in accordance to God's will, but against God's will, we've been saved from. And so God has a plan to, to rescue us. It's called the rapture. And the church is going to be snatched out. But your Bible says there is a definitive time that the end is going to come. And this is that time that people have been debating for a very, very, very long time. Now, I, looking around the room, there are some of us that have gray hair and or no hair. And I'm not talking about you who are prematurely bald, but those of us who are actually aged. And, and some of us have been around long enough to remember all of the people who have predicted the end of the world. All of the number of times that Harold Camping said, you, you better end up on a mountaintop someplace because Jesus is coming in 1988. And then in 92, and then in 94, and then 2001. And person after person has named times and dates. They claim to have some secret code from the Lord, uh, some numerologic reasoning that they would pull things out of Scripture. You know, it was Barney, the yellow, the purple dinosaur, if you spelled his name in Latin and took out all the vowels which didn't exist in the first place. Somehow it ended up telling you exactly when the rapture would happen and the tribulation would begin. But the Bible's clear that no one's going to know the day or the hour. The only thing we're going to know is the times of the seasons. And so as Jesus makes that remark, he's reminding us that doesn't mean that there isn't an end. That doesn't mean that God's just going to go on indefinitely putting up with mankind's abuse of the nation Israel and us thumbing our nose at God, telling him how we should be able to live and doing things our way. God's very clear that he will only go so far. And I believe Daniel got a view of that moment in time when God is going to say, that's it. As we saw Antiochus Epiphanes rise, and he is a type of the final Antichrist, but he cannot be the final Antichrist because Antiochus Epiphanes rose and died. He's been gone a long time, over 2,000 years, 2,168 to be exact. Antiochus was certainly a type of the Antichrist, but Revelation chapter 13 paints the picture of a real beast. These two little horns, the first one I, I believe was Antiochus. But the second one is so infinitely worse than the first that, that one cannot attribute the things that pale in comparison to what Antiochus did to Antiochus. Because the devastation that comes on the earth that we see in the book of Revelation is global. Antiochus' dev devastation, his desecration of the temple, was quite regional. He, he had no sway over the entire world. This ruler is going to have sway over the entire world. And God is going to solve this problem with a world-solving problem. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it says, And the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. The dragon is Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. And so he's going to be empowered. Notice what our passage says. This world ruler is going to rise up. He's going to understand sinister schemes. Where do you think those will come from? He's going to be mighty, but not by his own power. Where do you think that's going to come from? The book of Revelation tells us. So Daniel is told, seal this up. It isn't for now. It's for later. A lot later. 
Some people make the case, and they've been making the case all along. You know, Satan entered Judas Iscariot, and undoubtedly he's entered others in history. And an example of that uh, certainly would be Adolf Hitler. I have no doubt whatsoever that Adolf Hitler was satanically inspired. And in fact, he practiced occult, all kinds of crazy stuff. There is zero doubt. But as evil as Adolf Hitler was, he was still largely confined to Europe. As horrible as that was, it was still hundreds of thousands of people from the United States that lost their lives, about 485,000. If you include all of the deaths, there may have been 40 to 50 million people that perished. But your Bible is clear. If you read the book of Revelation, about two-thirds of the entire population of the world is going to be wiped out at some point in time. That would be billions more than died in World War II. And so there is a time coming. This stern-faced king, this master of intrigue is going to rise to power and he's going to be so powerful that, that he is going to mimic even the Lord. Revelation chapter 6 says this about him. And notice it almost sounds like this is Jesus. Verses 1 and 2, Revelation 6. And now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals. Now notice who opens the seal. It's the lamb. So it cannot be the lamb that is then the writer. So if there's only one lamb and his name is Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb is seen slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb opens one of the seals. This is the seal judgments of Revelation 6. I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. But it goes on to remind us that he has no arrows. This is a man of peace. He appears to be a ruler he looks like Jesus, but he sure doesn't act like Jesus. And interestingly enough, when Paul writes about this lawless one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says there in verses 9 and 11, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. And then he goes on to say something kind of crazy. Sounds almost, Really? Displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. In other words, he's going to be able to pull off, he's going to look like Messiah. He's going to have a capacity to fool the world that he is actually good. And they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe this lie. In other words, in the very last days, the deception of the false church empowered by Satan himself, ultimately through the rule of the Antichrist on this earth, even people who believe are going to be deceived. That's a powerful delusion. Now, right now, I can tell you a pretty vast majority of the church that's solidly grounded in the word of God doesn't believe those lies. But if you remove the true church, if the church is raptured, who's left? Every church that doesn't teach the Bible. Every church that has a fake gospel. Every church that speaks that feel-good message, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Every church that is fleecing the flock, every church that has an errant belief system, every church that does not follow the true and the living God. Every one of those churches is still going to be here. So guess what the Antichrist is going to be able to do? He's going to have ready-made congregations. He's just going to step in. Man, see how awesome it is that all those Christians are gone? Now, I don't know what that's going to look like ultimately because I'm not planning on being here when it happens. But I do know this. The world's going to rejoice that we're gone. Finally got rid of them. They've been against gay marriage. Finally got rid of them. 
They keep telling people it's not okay to divorce your spouse because they burnt your toast. You, you see, the world is going to look for those of us who actually believe that the Bible is true and everyone else is a liar. Goodbye, farewell, Avidar Zane, good night. Amen? And we're gonna, they're going to be singing Sound of Music songs when we're gone. Matter of fact, they may become worship songs in their church. I don't know. But what is going to happen is the final stage. The second horn is going to deceive the hearts of men. And the final hours of mankind's godlessness are going to ensue. Again, if you're here tonight and you know the Lord Jesus, you do not need to worry because you are not going to be here for this part. Uh, and if you believe you are, then if I'm wrong, we deserve to go through the tribulation. But I'm not planning on being here. You see, what the Bible says is that last world ruler is going to first be a person of peace. He's going to start a peace treaty that's going to look like the answer to the world's problems with Israel. And then at the middle of the final week, which we'll get to as we study chapter 9, as that final week unfolds, it's not going to be Antiochus Epiphanes that raises up. It's going to be a ruler that the world will then worship that we call the Antichrist. A man so powerful that he brings all of the nations of the world together. So powerful that he brings every religion in the world together. So powerful that he controls all of the banking in the entire world. Now I want to ask you a very simple question. Let's suppose for a moment you don't know the Lord. Looking around the room, I know that a vast majority of you do. We've been together for a while and I'm seeing familiar faces. So I would believe that most of us here love the Lord Jesus. But if you didn't know the Lord Jesus and some ruler came on the scene and could pull off what I just said, bringing together every government of every nation, bringing together every religion of every flavor, and bringing together all of the world's finances so that no one initially does without, you think that person would be pretty popular? I do. The world is ripe for them right now. We, we are so close to having these systems in place to where all we need is that person to rise up and say, I'm here. But Daniel is told the timing needs to be looked at a little further down the road. It isn't right now. But I do believe we can make some educated guesses, if you will. Uh, some informed possibility would, would be a, another way to look at it. And so what's going to happen during these evenings and mornings, these 2,300 of them, which is significantly longer, that's closer to six years than it is to three and a half years. What, what, what's going to happen during that time? And so if you look at this in a prophetic sense, there's several possibilities. But this image of the beast that's going to stand in the, the wing of the temple that we're told about in the book of Revelation um, is going to now be, in essence, everyone's object of worship. I think this also could include the time that Ezekiel speaks of in Ezekiel 38 and 39, known as the campaign or the battle of Magog, a, a long military campaign that encompasses all of the Middle East, aided primarily by Russia. Uh, and so we can see that's already set up. But ultimately, what's going to happen is the Jewish people are going to get to rebuild their temples. Anybody know if there's a temple on the Temple Mount right now? The answer is No. There is no Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. There are four mosques, but there's no temple. By the way, they opened a new mosque not that long ago. They actually excavated the area called Solomon's Temple, which under Herod the Great, 
uh, because there was not enough room on the Temple Mount for everything that was going on for the building that he was building, this magnificent temple. He expanded underneath the Temple Mount, put in these huge columns, gigantic arches to support the temple platform on which the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women stood in Herod's time. And that has now been excavated, cleaned out, and it's another mosque. So not only do you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is a giant mosque, seats about 5,000 people, the Dome of the Rock, or the Harim al-Sharif, you also have the Dome of the Chain. So you, you now have four mosques that sit on top of the Temple Mount, but there's no temple. And so the Jewish people, ultimately, because the Antichrist allows it, are going to have a temple on the Temple Mount. So until there's a temple on the Temple Mount, we still know its future. Because the last one got knocked off the Temple Mount in AD 70. There has not been one there for nearly 2,000 years. But the Antichrist is going to rise up and demand to be worshipped. It's going to be his image that's going to be inside that temple eventually. So we have a little bit more time could be that as Jesus said in Matthew 24 that those days might be shortened for there will be great distress Jesus said unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again and in fact if those days had not been cut short no one would survive but for the sake of the elect those days will be shortened Jesus said there in Matthew 24 21 and 22 So from Jesus' perspective, this was still future. So it couldn't have been Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus said those days later will be shortened. Here's why we will never know. We'll never know when the Son of Man is actually going to come. We won't know when the rapture is going to happen. We only know the season. Matthew 24, verse 29 says this, for immediately after the tribulation of those days, referring to the tribulation, not just general tribulation, the tribulation of those days, the last days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven and earth will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, I'm a student of history to some degree, and I don't know of any event that's been like that in the course of human history, where the entirety of the world looked up and saw anything coming from the heavens. Because if it was anything, it probably would have been a meteor if it was something astronomical. And at that point in time, we'd all be vaporized. But the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And he will send his angels at the sound of a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the one end of heaven to the other. And he goes on to say, now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now this is interesting because Jesus is talking about this catastrophic event that is visible in the entire world that is astronomical in nature. You you could look up. You you could see that somebody is coming back from heaven. Pretty clear that this is the King of Kings, the Lord of glory, the Son of Man. Who gave Jesus that title? It was Daniel. Daniel's the one that gave Jesus the title of Son of Man, and it was that title that got Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees fully understood that when Jesus said, who do you say that I, the son of man, am? They knew that he was referring to himself as Messiah. That's why they killed him. That was the actual reason that the Pharisees decided it's time this this guy's got to go. Now learn this parable from a fig tree. And so Jesus said, look, when you, you, when you see these things, uh, it, it's, it's not good. When a branch has nearly become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
Now, anybody here that's ever had a fruit tree actually knows these principles. And so you also, when you see all these things, what things? The tribulation of those days, the sun darkened, the heavens, the moon, the stars, all the stuff that Jesus has previously said in Matthew 24, as he's described wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations. You will know this is what you'll know. When you see all these things, that it is near. It's at the doors. Notice it doesn't say it's there. It's near. Because what do you know? When the leaves begin to pop up, there's still a little bit of time before they bear fruit. For assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by, by no means, what generation? The generation that sees these things. That sees the world turn to that place that Noah's world was in when God destroyed the world. As it was in the days of, the, of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. How is the world? The world was so bad off that God said that man's eyes were continually upon wickedness. That there wasn't anyone worth saving. That there was no one righteous save Noah and seven other members of his family. Eight people in total in the entire world. Jesus said, when you find a generation that sees the world turn that wicked, you better be looking up. For when you see the generation that sees these things, when they take place, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And then he gives us the clue. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, what did Gabriel tell Daniel? Seal it up. It is not for now. Gabriel didn't know the day or the hour. Gabriel could only describe the times and the seasons. Gabriel could give Daniel a little bit of information because the age of grace had not even begun yet. Verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Also, it shall be at the coming of the Son of Man. So this whole passage is still pointing forward. It's still pointing us towards a day and a time that is not here yet. Because man is simply on that path. And this is why it's so important for the church to recognize the times and the seasons. You know, sometimes I get in conversations with people and I honestly wonder if they ever read the news. If they ever look at what's going on in the world. If they've ever studied history. If they recognize any of the things that are going on in our world. Because they say absurd things like the world is getting better. I hear it frequently and often. Oh, yeah, the world's getting better. You know, we've almost cured AIDS. Can I tell you, AIDS is not the world's chief problem. It's bad. But that pales in comparison to the evil that mankind is perpetrating upon other mankind. If you take the number of people that die from AIDS and lay them alongside the number of people that are murdered... Because they are of a different tribe? Because they have a different religion? Because they come from the other side of the valley? It's insanely insignificant. The problem is the same problem that Adam and Eve had. That's man's heart has been hardened and darkened towards sin. And we are in the process of calling evil good and good evil you go out right now and you stand on a street corner and you shout shout vulgarities until you don't know any more vulgar words chances are you're not going to get arrested but if you go out and have a church service 
out in a public space without a permit, you are going to be told to go home or possibly be arrested. So I can go say any vulgar, vile thing I want, and that's going to be perfectly, it's going to get protected as freedom of speech. But if I tell you that someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction can actually be healed of that, I could potentially, if I were not a pastor protected by my pastoral ordination effectively, that thus far the U.S. Supreme Court has never gone after a pastor for teaching what the Word of God says. But that day, too, may well be coming. But if you're here and you're a counselor, and you tell somebody that they can be healed from same-sex attraction, you can lose your license and you could be jailed. Now tell me if the world's getting better. You see, the world is in that space and place that we are calling evil good. We're, we're telling children, well, you figure out what gender you are. Has nothing to do with biology. Has nothing to do with physiology. It's how you feel. Forty years ago, that would be, have been called child abuse. The parents would have been arrested. They would have been arrested. They would have been thrown in jail for encouraging their children to undergo gender reassignment surgery. They would have been thrown in jail. And now it's celebrated and you can get your own TV show. Tell me, is the world getting better? The reason I'm telling you this is your Bible says when we get to that place where evil is called good and good is called evil, we're getting near the end of the journey. How close are we? I don't know. But I know we're way closer than we were when I was in high school. Back when people used to go to the principal's office for chewing gum. Now, is your gun loaded? Might get you thrown into the principal's office. Back when vulgarity was, somebody said, darn it. And I'm not at all exaggerating. When I was in grade school, that would have been considered cussing. You think the world's getting better? 1962, I was sitting in my classroom when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Over the intercom, there was not a call to let's protest. There was a call to pray for our president. Class stopped and the entire school prayed that somehow he would be miraculously healed. Now, if you do that, you're probably going to lose your job. So from 1968 today, tell me if the world's getting better. Now, what's the linchpin in all of this? May 14th, 1948, Israel goes back into the land. The generation that sees these things begin will by no means pass away. Now, I'm not telling you I heard from the Lord that those that were born in that first generation back in Israel, that's the key, because then we would know exactly when it's going to happen, because the last one dies, and the rapture is going to happen. But I'm telling you, we are so infinitely much closer than Daniel's time that we can say the fruit tree's budding. There's not only leaves, this is infinitely worse than Napoleon Bonaparte or Antiochus Epiphanes or Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot, Genghis Khan. We've had rulers that you could look at and say, yeah, that's, that's satanic is what that is. But we haven't ever had a world where evil has been called good and good has been called evil. But we live in that world today. You can go to Amsterdam and purchase women like property Do you understand what I just said? We're going through the Me Too movement. You want to see what's uh, lying ahead of us here in this country? Go to Amsterdam. 
They have barges that run through the canals that offer both heroin and needles to users. We live in a world that is rapidly calling evil good. Ah, well, you know, we shouldn't get involved in those things. Yes, we should. Because they're destroying people's lives. When God says it's over, that's when it's over. That's why Daniel reacted the way he did. It was beyond his understanding. Some of these things, not only could he not understand, he couldn't understand how there could be anything so heinous as to engulf the whole world. He, he, couldn't, get, he couldn't understand the Babylonians. He could understand Cyrus the Mede. But God pouring out his wrath on the entire world? Well, what could bring that about? The reason that Daniel couldn't understand this with angelic help is because the world had not even remotely reached that place. I'm reading through a book on Jerusalem right now, a very long history of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's history is colorful to say the least. It's been the rise and fall of empire after empire after empire and conquest after conquest after conquest. But you know the interesting thing is in almost every case, eventually the two parties kind of came to disagree somewhat agreeably and someone simply left. Someone moved on. But there's going to come a point in time when your Bible says that they won't move on. The nations of the world will be gathered together against Israel and in the general vicinity of Jerusalem, and it will be so bad that it'll take a heavenly rescue that the Lord Jesus himself will have to come back and deal with it. So we look at the world that we're in today as we recognize the place that we sit. This little horn, the the coming prince, is going to rise up against the prince of princes. There are exactly two things, two things in all of the Bible that remain to happen before the very last days could ensue. And they don't have to happen in any particular order. One is that Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle. Because that concludes with the battle of Armageddon. Which in your Bibles is Revelation chapter 6 to 19. The bulls, the trumpets, these incredible afflictions of God's wrath upon the earth. And the other is the church disappearing. Once the church is gone... The world has about seven years. Give or take, I'm not telling God he couldn't do it seven years in one day or six years and, you know, go to the Babylonian calendar. I don't care. Don't plan on being here. That's it, folks. That's it. Because we don't know what extent God's talking about that the world will become so evil that good will be called evil and evil will be called good. We only know that that's a triggering device for us knowing that we're near the end. I think we're there. Now, that doesn't make me, you know, overly melancholy. To some degree, that excites me. It doesn't make me happy because I have to deal with the outfall of all that sin almost daily. I'm constantly talking to people's lives who have been ruined by sin. But what it does do is make me very busy about my father's business. Because I think time is short. I don't know when the Son of Man is going to come. I don't know when the battle of Gog and Magog is going to happen. I only know that the way you escape having to worry about that stuff is by believing in the only begotten Son of God. That's what I know. Amen? That's why Paul would write to the church at Corinth there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 6. 
He said, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. So there's a sense of urgency. If the Apostle Paul could write that to the church at Corinth, and the world has progressively figured out new ways to sin, new severities to it, then we should be busy about the business of the gospel. Not politics, the gospel. Now, we're going to get engaged in politics because we have no choice. It's part of our society. It's part of our culture. But the business of the church is the good news. It's the ABCs. It's for encouraging people to admit that they're a sinner and to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess their sins and, and to be forgiven for those sins. Because that's the actual real problem that people refuse to admit to. And because of that, that is why people substitute all these other things. That's what's going, it's just a swap. It's just I'll trade the sinful behavior for a right relationship with God. I, I don't want God in my business. I actually had a young man tell me that not long ago. He said, well, I just don't want God in my business. And I looked at him, kind of, and I probably looked pretty dumbfounded. But I said, do you not think that God is already in your business? He goes, well, I don't know why he'd care about me. I said, I do, because he loves you. And he looked at me dumbfounded. It was like, God loves me? Yes, God loves you. After all I've done? Yes, God loves you after all you've done. God loved you before you did it. He's going to love you when you get done doing it. Now, he doesn't like what you're doing. He wants you to repent because those things destroy your life. There's not a single thing in Scripture that's called sin that's good for you. Not one. Not one. They all either harm your person, your mind, or your soul. And very often all three. And so as we approach this new year, I want to give you a little challenge. Today's the day of salvation for a lot of people. The gospel is the only thing that can save them from what lies ahead. Because the good news for the believer is, no matter what happens in this world, I know in whom I have believed that he is able to keep me, to keep that which he's committed to me, and he's promised to save me from his wrath and take me home to heaven. That, friends, is what I want for everybody. That requires that we be busy with the gospel with telling people the truth, not capitulating to evil, never bowing the knee to Baal, not saying, well, you know, you just do your own thing. Look, you know, it's not an easy thing to speak into people's lives when they have a habit or a behavior or something going on that clearly is contrary to God's word. But if you love them, you will absolutely do that. If you love them. You don't love them, then let them do whatever. But if you love them and you know what God's word says, then you have to stand on what God's word says. That's why it's so absolutely important that the church doesn't lose its character by engaging in things that scripture says we shouldn't be doing. And it is the same reason on the opposite side of that same coin that we should be busy doing the things that God says we should be doing as children of grace, filled with his love. We should be the kindest, most gentle people, but we should be bearers of the truth at the same time. We should be loving and yet at the same time be unwavering in our support for the king and for his kingdom. And if we will do that, then we have the best opportunity for people to not have to go through any of this stuff. We share that with them. Who wants to go through three and a half years of great tribulation? You know, I, I, don't, I know I don't. And so a, as we ponder these things in our hearts, this is the Romans road, uh, reminds us, there, there's none of us righteous, not one of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. I have, you have, we have, the church has. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is righteousness. It comes to us eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
And what we believe is that Jesus was delivered over unto death for my sin and raised so that I might have eternal life. That's what I actually believe when I believe on his name. That God demonstrated his love towards towards me in this, that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. When I was still actively going the wrong way. That's what I believe. And when I confess he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Family, this is the ABCs of the gospel. This is not hard. These are the things we have to be able to speak into people's lives. Because the truth is, is just exactly as Romans 10 says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But if we don't tell them about Jesus and we just let them go the way of the world, then we're allowing them to believe that they're okay with God. And while his grace is great, mind-boggling, it is not tawdry, it is not cheap, and it is only free in this gift we receive, it will cost us our lives to follow him. And so I pray as we embark on this new year, we'll have a new seriousness about ourselves. Now that does not mean, please hear me well in this, that does not mean we become stoic and unfriendly and running around like, oh, the end is near, like, you know, we're watching Chicken Little live. But it does mean that we understand the world that we live in. And then we look at the world and say, Lord, what can I do for your kingdom right now? Because I honestly believe that your word says that you're not going to mess around with this sin stuff forever. You're not going to let us keep going the direction we're going in. Family, if we believe that, then people's eternity are in balance. People that you know, people that you love, people you care about are perishing if they do not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that freaks some of you out, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If that makes some of you a little bit mad that I said it, praise the Lord. But I pray what it actually does is cause you to realize exactly how serious it is that we be busy about our Father's business in 2020. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray together. Some of the pastors will be up front and I want to encourage you, if you're here, I just spoke the gospel. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you don't know who Jesus is, you've never given your life to him, I'm going to challenge you. Come down here and pray and invite Christ into your life right now. Don't leave this place without him because we don't know. We do not know the day or the hour. We just know that the time is close. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. And Lord, this passage is, is piercing to our souls, Lord, it reminds us that there's going to be a day and time when the age of grace will end. There'll be no more opportunity save that time when the Antichrist makes it a life or death situation, Lord. That to know you would literally cost us our lives. And so we pray that while we still live in this age that we call the age of grace, while, while there still is time for the Gentiles to do their work on this earth, would we be busy, Lord, telling people about you and your marvelous grace, your wonderful plan of salvation, the good news of your gospel. Lord, ignite us as a church. Lord, help us to be unashamed. Lord, bearers of truth. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.